0: Welcome to the St. Emeline's Induction Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall.
1: And I'm Simon Carley.
0: And we'd like to talk to you today about a very common presentation to the emergency department the shorter breath patient who presents with asthma. So, this will be a case you'll see quite often. We'll start with a case presentation and we'll go step by step through the management of that patient and key things in their history, examination, and further planning for their inpatient care or their discharge. So, Simon, You're in the recess room and we've got a patient who's just been alerted. They're coming into hospital. It's a 30-year-old female. She's got a history of acute severe asthma and she's suddenly short of breath that morning. Very little else in the history. All you found out is that she's a a 20-a-day smoker. And in the past, she's had to stay in hospital, even had an ITU admission once a couple of years ago. She's wheeled into the recess room and she's puffing away in front of you. Short of breath. There's audible wheeze. What's your first steps? Well, I think there's quite a lot of information you've given us there already, which we need to take heed
1: of. A couple of things. The ambulance crews have alerted us to this patient. So they've got a concern about what's going on. And I think we need to take those concerns very, very seriously. If they're worried, we should be worried too. She's 30. Known history of asthma always helps if the patients come with a bit of a diagnosis beforehand, but we need to just keep in our mind that it might be something else. She's a smoker. Well, that might help precipitate an attack and it's probably not very good for her, but it's very unlikely that she's got anything like COPD at the age of 30. The fact that she's short of breath as you see her come into resus and that you can hear the wheeze as she's being wheeled in, that's starting to make me think that this is an asthma attack, yes, but potentially one
0: towards the more severe end of the spectrum. We need to take this girl seriously. So we've highlighted that this girl is poorly, she's ill. What's first? Are you going to stand next to her take a nice uh, comprehensive history ask her about her previous exacerbations whether she's got any pets that sort of business i think that information will be useful but we can get to it later
1: if somebody's got severe asthma you need to make a rapid assessment of them it's really an abc assessment as we do in many other conditions but you need to get a good idea of whether this is asthma to confirm your diagnosis and then get an idea of how severe it is because that's going to guide your next stages of management
0: And do you do that while treating the patient? I'm a big fan of cracking on and getting on with giving patients things that I think are going to make them better. In this case, when we've got a good diagnosis and the paramedics
1: have started therapy, as we're transferring this patient from the ambulance trolley onto the ED trolley, if we've not already set up to do it, we should be continuing the management that the paramedics have done. So, that would, in the initial stages, include getting them onto high flow oxygen and continuing their nebulizers if they've already been given, or starting nebulizers if it's not yet been done. You might want to have a very quick listen to the chest just to confirm your diagnosis, make sure you're not missing something bizarre like attention pneumothorax. But if you see the patient, they look like an asthmatic. They sound like an asthmatic. You have a listen to the chest. They've got masses of wheeze both sides, which is the sort of picture you're painting me. I think get on with some oxygen,
0: get on with some nebulisers whilst you continue your assessment. So we're going to treat as we find out information. So nebulisers, what nebulisers, particularly in doses, are we going to try and give this young lady? In the initial stages, I go for 5 milligrams of salbutamol and
1: 500 micrograms of atrovent. And I don't really worry if they've just had one five minutes before. I'm making a clinical assessment that that patient is still having problems and therefore
0: I'll just crack on and give another one whilst we're continuing our assessment. And for the pharmacology geeks out there, and we've all got a bit of geekiness, just remind us how those each work. Salbutamol, which is a beta-2
1: agonist, so that's going to influence the airways, relax the smooth muscle in the airways and hopefully increase ventilation and subsequently gas transfer. Ipratropium's is slightly different. It acts on the muscarinic acetylcholine receptors it blocks them and again should produce some bronchodilation the key thing with both of those of course is they're acting on the muscle so you get a degree of bronchodilation but that's not the full story in asthma you do have bronchospasm but you also have mucus production secretions in the airways and these drugs may not have
0: quite the effect on those elements as you would hope And that will bring us on to other treatments we're going to need. But that's the key point for asthma that I think is important to remember. This is about getting the air, the oxygen from the outside world and transporting it to the alveoli where it can be transferred across into the bloodstream. This is a problem of gas transport. There will be that mucusy stuff in the lungs and that may in a little bit affect the gas transfer further down but what we're trying to do is increase the amount of gas that can go from the outside world to the key where it's needed in the alveoli so we're going to give some nebulizers salbutamol ipotropium excellent we're on the high flow oxygen trying to get those sats up as high as we can any other treatments you want to give straight away I think at this stage I probably wouldn't treat any further now but what
1: I would do is make my assessment now get an idea for the severity get some numbers to look at and get a
0: feel for where we're going to go with this patient. So the nebulizers are up and going what criteria should we use to judge whether this is a severe or life-threatening episode of asthma? Well, there's a number of things you can use and things like the British Thoracic Society
1: have some good guidelines. You can go and have a look at those and they've got a number of criteria. But you should have something in your department which gives you some degree of objectivity about asthma severity assessment. So there are features that would be consistent with mild attack. So just somebody who expresses, I think my chest is getting a bit tight. And then there's a grading level going through moderate symptoms, acute severe symptoms, and then life-threatening symptoms. And then looking at their peak flow, and I'm sure you're familiar with taking peak flows, you know, blow into the tube, see how fast you can go. People who've got a peak flow more than 50%, certainly, you know, to 75% of their predicted or best, they'd be in the moderate category. You're still going to have to treat them, watch them for a bit, but they're not really going to give you massive anxiety. Is there and then moving up you've got the acute severe asthma so they've got a much lower level of peak flow below 50 percent high respiratory rates over 25 high heart rates over 110 or inability to complete a sentence in one breath because it depends on the length of the sentence and then beyond that you've got the life-threatening ones which are the ones that i'm really interested in, in the research room the ones that give me anxiety because asthma still kills Been around for ages, we've got good therapies, but we're still getting asthma deaths and we need to concentrate on this group. So the sick ones, really low peak flows. And when I say really low, the guidelines often say things like less than 33%. But in my experience, these people usually can't do a peak flow and it's not a great idea. If they've got low SAT, so below 92%, if they take a blood gas and their PO2 is less than 8, if they've got normal or high CO2s, if the chest is silent, if they're cyanosed, if they're not breathing well, if they've got associated features like hypotension or a dysrhythmia, if they're exhausted, they're tired, they look as if they're getting you know, exhausted in front of you, that is a group of patients who you have to
0: take extremely seriously and get on and treat aggressively. And all of those criteria are really important. But if we pull them together, the end of a bedogram, when you look at the patient, they look really sick. And that's the point at which you can almost come away from worrying about all these numbers. You don't need to memorise them. You don't need to go to a computer. You don't need to go to an app to find out, oh, is this acute? Is this life-threatening? They look sick. Ask a non-medical friend, excuse me, does this person look ill? And they will say yes. This is the point at which we need some help. As Simon says... We still have young people dying of asthma and we've got to do everything we can to stop this. So you're going to get your therapy on. You've got your nebulizers going. And if they are that life-threatening group, you call for help. Now, in my hospital, that would be the consultant in emergency medicine. In many places, that would be the case. But if you're overnight and you don't have that support, you get yourself a senior to come and help you in the recess room because early intervention may well help save this person's life. So we've got this sick person in front of us, Simon. We've given some nebulizers there's a little bit of an improvement. You've taken a bit more of a history, found out that in the past they have recurrent episodes, maybe six episodes a year. They often have to come to hospital. They've been to intensive care at least once in the past. What are you going to be doing now? Continue with the nebulizers? Are there other therapies you want to consider? There certainly are. The nebulizers. I think, in a patient who's severely
1: unwell, just back-to-back them. Just continually nebulize them all the time. You don't have to go back to giving one salbutamol nebulizer every four hours. That's a very bad idea. So continuously nebulize them. And then there's a number of other therapies which are out there, which I'm sure people will be familiar with. First being steroids. Everybody knows that you give steroids for asthma. But there's a real question about when you give them and how quickly they work because they're going to try and turn the whole mechanism off. They're going to reduce the inflammatory process, but they're not necessarily something which is going to make your patient better in the next half an hour, which is really your focus and resource. So, yeah, sure. Get the steroids in. Give them oral steroids. Oral steroids are fantastic unless there's any reason why they can't take oral. Give oral steroids. One to two milligrams per kilogram for something like prednisolone, but it's not a high priority. Your high priority is managing the ventilation, the airflow in and out. So what else can you do for that? We've got our inhaled bronchodilators. We can give intravenous bronchodilators. And in my experience, we often find people struggling with the decision about when to start intravenous bronchodilators. So, salbutamol, and I suppose we're going to have to mention aminophilin, people still use that. But when, when do you start considering um, giving IV salbutamol?
0: Well, I think what you have to think about is that nebulized drug has to get to the point of action. So, it has to be able to get to the area that it needs to be working. And if you're at that life-threatening stage, all of those parameters you mentioned are really indicators that the gas whether that's the oxygen you're giving or the air from the outside world or your nebulizer, are not getting to where they need to be. So if your sats are falling, if there's a silent chest, if there's no gas transport at all, then the drug simply can't work. It's not going to be effective. And that's definitely the point where I'm thinking about IV therapy. I think over the years, my threshold for starting intravenous therapy has gone down.
1: And I now use it probably at an earlier stage in patients. So certainly in the patients who come in with acute life-threatening features, I'll consider and actually make up salbutamol as the patient's arriving. I asked one of my colleagues to make it up so that I know it's there and can be used and started at any point. So we've got intravenous bronchodilators. We use IV salbutamol. I know some people still use aminophilin. I'm not so keen on it, but the evidence for one versus the other isn't fantastic. So you will find different practice locally. The other one is magnesium, and magnesium is a really interesting one because magnesium was something which has really come into asthma management over, I guess, over the last 10 years, and is now extremely popular to be given intravenous magnesium in the early stages of life-threatening and severe asthma. But we've had a bit of a change over the last year with that, with um, recent publications of trials which we've covered on St Emlyn's. So magnesium in acute severe asthma, there was a nice trial, 3MG trial,
0: which demonstrated that, well, actually, maybe it didn't make that much of a difference. With magnesium, I always come back, as I do, and I mentioned on the podcast the whole time, between the harm and benefit. So magnesium to me is a relatively benign drug when it comes to harm. I think there may be some benefit in a small subgroup of people, but it's unlikely to cause the patient to get worse. So I think about giving magnesium, but I don't let it prioritise against the other things that I'm more keen on. So if the choice was between giving back-to-back nebulizers or the need for intravenous bronchodilators versus can the nurse go and draw up the magnesium, I'm going to go for those bronchodilators first. If everything else is done and we're still not getting anywhere, then I might ask the nurse to draw up the magnesium and we might give a bolus dose of magnesium. But it's always that harm-benefit ratio that I'm trying to consider. In the studies
1: done last year, they excluded the acute life-threatening group anyway. So the data in that group we don't know. Your point about how the human factors work here is essential. I suppose my concern is when I've been in the research room and somebody said, okay, probably time to give bronchodilators, let's try the magnesium for half an hour, and if that doesn't work, we'll try the intravenous bronchodilators of the salbutamol. That to me seems a bit topsy-turvy on the basis of the current evidence. I don't particularly object to people giving it, but it's no longer my number one priority as a next stage in therapy after bronchodilators aren't getting me where I need to go.
0: So we've got a patient, they've come in acute severe asthma, perhaps towards the life-threatening end. We've given high-flow oxygen with nebulizers back-to-back, salbutamol and ipratropium. We've thought about getting some steroids into the patient and we're going to do that whichever way we can whilst not interrupting that bronchodilator therapy. If things don't seem to be improving, we're going to go at one step and we're going to think about intravenous bronchodilator therapy. I think our choice would be salbutamol. And again, if we get the chance, whilst all those therapies are acting, magnesium may be of benefit. Now, if things aren't improving, Simon, obviously, if you're the doctor who's just starting in emergency medicine, by now you have somebody next to you who is helping you. You must call for help. What is going to be the next stage? What are they going to be suggesting if things still aren't getting better?
1: I think at this stage, you would be wanting to have a conversation with your critical care colleagues because this patient's either going to HD or ICU. They may or may not need ventilation. And ventilating the asthmatic patient, it's tiger country in medicine. It's dangerous, it's difficult, and you need experienced anesthesia stroke critical care support to do that. It can be a a life-ending event, so it's really, really tricky. There are a number of other things at this stage which can be used. And we, we sort of, you know, the evidence is now getting smaller and smaller to support these ideas. But other things which people may talk to you about are things like ketamine infusion. So, ketamine is a bronchodilator, it can be used to manage the very severe asthmatic. CPAP is being used, paradoxically, if you think about it, with air trapping and asthma. But non invasive ventilatory strategies are increasingly being used to manage these patients. But again, you would have to do that with significant critical care input if you don't already have have that within your emergency department
0: and i think the reason we mention these are not because we want you to be doing them just have an awareness of what your colleagues might be suggesting your senior colleagues when they come in to help you in the recess room at no point are we suggesting that as a less experienced doctor in emergency medicine you should be drawing up the ketamine and just seeing if it gets the patient better you need senior help with these now that's the acute severe asthmatic or the life-threatening asthmatic patient who's not getting any better. What about the patient, Simon, let's go back a bit. You've given some nebulizers and actually things are turning round. They're improving a bit. They're now able to talk in sentences. They tell you that they had the window open and they've been mowing the lawn all day. They know that that's not particularly good for them and they've had some reaction and they're really keen to head home. How do we decide which of those patients in whom they had a bad episode but are now getting better, which of those can be safely discharged and who needs to stay in hospital?
1: It's a really good question because this is another area where you can accidentally head off down the wrong track. If
0: you've had a patient who's come in who's been so severe
1: that you've identified them as either as acute severe or life-threatening, when they first arrive, even if they have a fantastic turnaround with your initial nebulizers, I would be extremely cautious about sending them home or allowing them to go home. I think... I would like them to stay in hospital for a window long enough that I'm reasonably assured that the steroids, which I've also given them, are probably having an effect because our steroids are a kind of mechanism to turn off the whole process. So for me, any patients in those groups, I would be keeping along for six to eight hours. Any patient who I've come through the door and I've said, you know, this person needs an immediate nebulizer, that's kind of a cognitive trigger to say, actually, you're going to have a period of observation on our short stay ward. I'd be rather cautious about giving fairly significant interventions to patients and then then letting them go home very early if my initial impression was that they were quite sick.
0: And these are high stakes interventions. These are often young people. The time we need to invest to be sure and be safe, I think is worthwhile. So I'm always pushing that we keep an eye on these patients for longer. The need for a nebulizer doesn't necessarily trigger hospital admission, because you can never be quite sure who's taken that decision to give the nebulizer. but really, if you're getting to the stage of needing nebulized therapy and you've ended up in the emergency department in the back of a blue light ambulance, almost regardless of how quickly you turn around, this is not a patient in whom you're chasing the target to get them out of your department in four hours you are finding a spot where you can look after them and safely plan their discharge. And the British Thoracic Society also have some recommendations about some of the things we need to put in place for discharge planning. got to be careful with these patients. So they need to
1: be very well safety netted. Natalie May, who works uh, with us in St Emelins, will always say to the patient, come back if you've got any concerns. Even if you get to the car park and you've got some concerns, come back. And that's really good advice. So you've got the whole human factors type thing. But you also need to make sure that the patients have got their therapy that they've got access to their typical inhalers, that they know how to use their inhalers, that you've checked their technique, that you understand that they've got somebody safe to go home with. So those are the sort of things that you need to just safety net your patient around. Are there any other things that you do with your patients, Ian?
0: I guess the only other thing that I would think about recommending is a follow-up with a general practitioner or their asthma nurse in the next couple of days following the exacerbation. Just as you say, to reinforce those messages about appropriate inhaler use, whether or not they need to be on any further therapies, because there are some oral therapies, Montelukast, the leukotriene antagonist, that sort of thing, which may be recommended if the patient's getting further exacerbations. And I think generally, especially in the UK, we're looking for asthma to be managed in the community by our general practice colleagues and the specialist asthma nurses. And so I'd always, if there was going to start for the long-term therapy, want to do it in collaboration with those colleagues, not just on the back of that acute exacerbation on my own in the emergency department. I think we can be
1: careful with these patients and we can look after them well.
0: So there we have it. We've talked a little bit about asthma. We've talked about how we believe that we should try and manage these patients aggressively when they first come. And then we've just rounded off with a couple of little things that we're hoping to encourage you to wheedle out of our emergency medicine practice so that they don't need to happen anymore and give you some reasons for that. So let's just think again. Let's recap on what we've talked about. We've talked about recognising the life-threatening or acute severe asthma episode. End of the bed, you'll often know that, but we can use some objective measures which the British Thoracic Society have really eloquently put into their guidelines. We're going to give high flow oxygen and plenty of nebulizers back to back. None of this. Give it every four hours business. Keep giving salbutamol. Keep giving ipotropium. We're going to think about getting some steroids into the patient. We're going to use oral or IV, whichever is the most appropriate for that patient at that time. And we're very early on going to think in the life-threatening and acute severe ones about whether they need intravenous bronchodilator therapy. And probably that's going to be salbutamol. We've mentioned a bit about magnesium. It probably won't do any harm. It may do some benefit, but don't let it get in the way of the other things you're doing. And of course, most of all, as we always say in our induction podcasts, get somebody experienced alongside you. These are poorly patients and they need the most experienced care that you have available. So that rounds off this induction podcast talking about asthma. Please go back and look at iTunes. There's plenty of other induction podcasts available on a wide range of topics and we'll keep bringing out more over the next few months. It's been good to talk to you. Good luck with your emergency medicine and as ever, take care.